As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. the athletic football show i'm robert mays joining me today my good friends Lindsay jones and nate tights Lindsay, how are you doing over there how's the puppy treating you getting that getting enough sleep over there how are you i'm absolutely not getting enough sleep but she is freaking <laughs> adorable and really fun um nelly is doing great but yeah she likes to wake up as soon as the sun is up which here in Denver is about 5 15 maybe 5 30 if i'm lucky so yeah not the best <laughs> molly and i have an understanding with each other that if I feed her at six, she goes back to sleep for an hour, which is really nice. I'm glad that we've reached that common ground. Nate, how are you? How's Midge? How's life? <laughs> Midge is good. Midge, Midge had a traumatizing morning with the uh, somebody in our backyard and then uh, got to run around like Fred Flintstone on our slick floors. So that was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting morning for Midge. I, I'm, I'm excited to get the take triumvirate back here with us three coming back <laughs> and maybe maybe it's not a draft but maybe it's something else that we could talk about so the stakes are a little bit lower we're going to talk about coaches today and i didn't want to do another draft i didn't want to do another ranking just because it felt like we've done that we didn't want to go back to that well too often so what we're going to do today is kind of coach superlatives not a ranking but a few different categories almost as a check-in about the league and the coaches and the landscape as it stands right now, we're going to talk about the best coaches, some coaches that we think might be on the hot seat, some of the more underrated, under-talked about position coaches, coordinators, all of that kind of stuff. Before we do that, though, obviously, some huge news happened yesterday. Nate, you and I talked about Julio on Friday's show. I knew we would talk about him today, so that's why I didn't feel like we needed to scramble the Jets yesterday. A team that we thought might trade for him, a team that in our minds made sense to trade for him. The Tennessee Titans trade a second round pick and some change for Julio Jones. They take on all of his salary, which was one of the considerations that we talked about when it came to who might deal for him, who could, what teams would have to create some room, which the Titans are going to have to. Lindsay, we haven't talked to you at all about this. What were your reactions to the Julio Jones trade? And what do you think this means for Tennessee? Yeah, I mean, I think it made a lot of sense just in terms of a landing spot for a team that really could use him. I, when I think about what that Tennessee offense could look like, just like physically look like and what they could be in their their best form, 
it's really terrifying, right? And if you are Matt Eberflus or some of these guys that we might end up talking about today, that's terrifying to know that you're going to have to try to figure out Julio Jones and AJ Brown and oh yeah, Derrick Henry. I mean, I think there's just, it unlocks a ton of really exciting possibilities if you're the Titans. You know, I think if you're the Falcons, you probably wish you would could have gotten more, but this was kind of the reality of it. You weren't going to get a first round pick at this point. I don't think anybody was offering that. That doesn't seem like it was ever on the table. Um, and, you know, I think if you're, you know, some of these other teams in the NFC, specifically the NFC West, I think there were some, you know, intriguing possibilities. You think about, you know, the Seahawks or the 49ers in a reunion with Kyle Shanahan that you kind of got got excited about those possibilities. And obviously those are all off the table now, but I really like the fit in Tennessee. And, you know, for the Falcons, it's kind of the best they could hope for at this point where it, this was an unworkable situation. They had to move on. The drama is done. They're going to get into mandi- mandatory minicamp without the Julio Jones questions. And, you know, it's always kind of sad when a best player in a franchise or one of the best players in franchise history is gone. Um, but, it kind of had to happen. And it's probably for the best that it happened now the first week of June without this dragging on and on and on any longer. So I want to talk about the the Falcons perspective here in a second. But Nate, I wanted to ask you about the Titans, because there's one thing we haven't really talked about in regard to all of this. Like Lindsay said, if you picture the guys on the depth chart and what the starting 11 looks like for Tennessee, it's pretty damn good. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a group that since you know, over the last two seasons, they rank fourth in EPA per play, and that includes the Marcus Mariota starts. With Ryan Tannehill, they've been arguably the most efficient offense in the league. And now the offensive line is fairly similar. You lose Janu Smith, you switch out, the kind of roles change a little bit. Anthony Ferkser, his profile rises, he's going to get a lot of those snaps. It's a downgrade, but one you can live with. And now you're swapping out Corey Davis for Julio Jones. In a lot of ways, the personnel, the players, are as good as they've been since Ryan Tannehill arrived there, and you can get pretty excited about that. The one huge thing here that I think has been under-discussed is that Arthur Smith is no longer in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. He is not the offensive coordinator. He was so good at that job that he is now the head coach of the team that just traded Julio Jones, which we'll address here in a second. But the guy who took over for him is Todd Downing, who was their old tight ends coach, and Nate, someone you worked with very closely when you guys were in Oakland together. How do you think Todd's tendencies as a play caller, his skill set as an offensive coach now fit with this personnel in Tennessee? Because I think that is now the biggest question mark remaining about this offense and its ceiling in 2021. Yeah. And when we were in Oakland, I mean, you remember kind of like the strength of our team was definitely on the offensive line. Mm-hmm. And then we just had some fun pieces. Derek did a good job, but then had you know a couple of really good solid receivers on the outside with Crabtree and Amari. And with this, I mean, Julio and uh, AJ Brown are a little half tier better than that, maybe a full <laughs> tier better than that package, um, especially the tight end room as well. And I think with, with Todd is when he, he went bounced to Minnesota, now he's uh, in Tennessee and he was a tight end coach in both of those places is now he's been exposed to maybe a whole new realm of play calling and maybe totally. play design. And I think that's why very different types of offenses, very, very, different. very different. And that's uh, Todd is a uh, he's from Scott Linehan tree. I mean, if you were to like look at from that perspective and Linehan was actually my dad's office coordinator in Minnesota. So it's kind of something I'm very familiar with. And it's with that offense is more, you know, staticky, two by two a lot, three by one. We don't really condense the formations. We kind of like, you know, spread to run and then condense the pass, kind of a lot of play action, but the play action concepts were the true vertical play action concepts, touchdown to check down. 
and a lot more just uh, two by two drop back half field read stuff. And I'm kind of getting a little too nitty gritty here. But what Todd really is kind of as he's gone on and now he's he was with Kevin Stefanski in Minnesota as well. And with those types of offenses, those are the Kubiak Shanahan tree. I mean, more or less, you know, Arthur Smith has been a little bit of everything. They have the same but DNA. DNA. Yeah. And really everything's become so hybrid now. So it's kind of everybody. It's, it's crazy how much every how much blending is happening right now. But I think what Todd is he knows he just sees what they accomplish. And Todd's not going to reinvent the wheel. I, I He's smart enough to know that. And I think with these guys and this fit here, the interesting thing to me that I want to see is is that kind of that the Corey Davis thing, why he was so important to the offense a little bit was the the dirty work. He he could play every every rep and do the dirty work, and then on the next play he'd you know catch those fifteen yard dig routes or or an outbreaker or something of that sort. He was the Z, and now I'm curious to see how Julio and AJ Brown because they're both one A types, and who's going to do the dirty work now on some of that run stuff? So now I I, I want to see what the steps are going to be. Is he going to spread it out a little more to maybe not get him inside the formation to where he has to fit up? Like Julio's not going to fit up on duo. I love Julio, but he might, he might do it on like a third down, but he's not going to do it on like a, <laughs> like every play like Corey Davis was asked to do sometimes. So that's something I'm interested to see, but I think Todd's not going to really reinvent the wheel. I think they're going to see more of a hip slot formations, which is where two tight ends are on one side and then Corey Davis and Julio, or Corey Davis, I'm sorry, AJ Brown and Julio are on the other side. And I can really see that that gets that sliding tight end action that they really like with the split zone with the bootleg stuff so i i think those formations are gonna be a little more prevalent where they're gonna kind of really overload you and really declare are you gonna run zone against this because back then with moss when he was rolling everybody had to run too high everyone was running cover two and then that's why the vikings had always had a good run game is because it was the softest boxes well, I think this Tennessee Titans run game is a little better than any of those Minnesota Minnesota run games when they have Derrick Henry pound the rock against these soft boxes. So I I'm gonna I'm, I'm curious. I, I know Todd, but I'm really curious to see what he puts together and see the blend of ideas that he has and what he's gonna do. So when you look at it again, the offensive talent is striking. We'll see what happens at right tackle. They drafted Dylan Radunes in the second round. They have Tyre Sembrilo there still. So that's the other kind of one position that might be a little bit in flux. But the personnel is very good. And I think, Nate, you and I talked about this a little bit on Friday. When it comes to the Titans window, this makes perfect sense, right? Yep. This team has a 32-year-old quarterback that they paid. They paid Derrick Henry. They're in win-now mode. They needed a guy like this. Their motivation and urgency to make this kind of deal happens makes total sense. Now they have to do some restructuring. I want to say if they completely restructure Tannehill's deal, bring his base down to like 1.1, it would save them $15 million in cap space this year, which is exactly Julio's base salary. So you can understand (laughs) them possibly doing that. But Dan Pizzuta wrote this for Sharp Football Stats, and I thought it was a great point. It's very similar to how I thought about the trade. Now, Lindsay, I'm curious what you think. Even if we think this is a no-brainer move for the Titans, one they probably had to make considering their lack of receiving talent outside of A.J. Brown, even if this is now the best receiving duo in the NFL, which we could talk about in a second, does this change the Titans' outlook in 2021? Does this really make them a contender, even if it was a type of move they had to make? How do you feel about them now, Lindsay? Do you think differently about them now than you did three days ago? Uh, I feel a little bit a bit differently about them in the AFC South, which I think was already already a very winnable division. The Colts have mm-hmm. one very significant question hanging over the Colts right now. But so I think I think they're the best team in the AFC South today, knowing what we know or knowing what we don't know is perhaps a better way to put it about the Colts. But in terms of like closing that gap with the Chiefs, with the Bills, with 
the Ravens, with some of these other teams, you know, the Chargers, some of these other teams that might even be kind of on the up, you know, on the upswing. I'm not sure if I still think they're a tier or two down from the very best teams in the AFC. And I'm just still not sold completely on their defense as the unit that's going to keep them in games. You know, let's say they're back at Arrowhead Stadium in January. I'm not sure if, you know, having Julio Jones, maybe that enables you to score seven more points a game. Like I, I got to see exactly what the averages would be. Gives you a little bit more firepower. But if you're going to be in a playoff game against one of those teams that I mentioned already, you're probably going to have to be, you know, scoring a lot of points and you're going to be giving up a lot of points. And I'm just still not quite sure the Titans did enough defensively this offseason to make them significantly better to keep up with those teams we just mentioned. I, th- I totally agree. And I think that their ceiling raises with Julio, obviously, yeah. right? But the range of outcomes is still very wide. Julio's getting older. He's been banged up a little bit, even though he's been on the field. Whether he's been a 100% is a different question. What does Todd Downing do? Can he get the most out of this offense? I think there's still a lot of questions, even if the ceiling has been raised. But I think that it's a bet worth making for this reason. They have two to three years here to do this. Tannehill's 33. They can get out of Tannehill's deal for $5 million in dead money after the 2022 season. If they restructure this and adds about $7 million to that dead money deal, it's $12 million with the way the cap is going up, you do that. So that to me is the risk that's worth it in this moment, and that's why it's something that you do. You can see the plan for the Titans. For the Falcons, it's harder to see. And I think that was always going to be the question going into this offseason. Do we tear it down or do we go for it? And it felt like by drafting Kyle Pitts at four, by restructuring Matt Ryan's deal, they were going for it. And I understand that there are financial realities to this, right? They needed to free up some money somewhere, and trading Julio in their minds was the easiest way to do that, even if they didn't want to do it. But now, what are you really? Like Now Russell Gage is your second best receiver, if we don't say Kyle Pitts is a receiver, but their defense is still bad. Now their ceiling on offense is significantly lower. Matt Ryan isn't getting any younger. And I understand that they needed to restructure Matt Ryan's deal just to get enough money to operate. But it almost feels like, shouldn't they have just tried to trade Matt Ryan when it was financially doable earlier in this offseason? Because it feels like they're in a middle ground now that's going to be difficult to navigate. Nate, if you're Atlanta right now, do you understand the plan? Do you understand what the route out of where they are in this moment actually is? Not really, because it seemed like the it seems like they try to do two things at once. And I as much as I say, like, yeah, Calvin Ridley can ascend, like he's gonna be a number one this year easily. He's a number one type receiver. I thought the situation would make so much sense to bring in a rookie quarterback or a young quarterback. Even if you're, there's some way you didn't want to trade Matt, but obviously you want to. He had to sit a guy, the young guy might have to sit behind him. Like I just thought that was the obvious path and a path that made sense, especially in this draft and this spot that they are sitting in. Cause if you're having Matt Ryan as your quarterback, you're basically guaranteeing yourself at least a pick in the teens. I mean, he is That's still the a problem. Quarter. That yeah. is the problem is that by virtue of Matt Ryan's presence, you put yourself in no man's land. If you don't like the quarterbacks at four, don't pick a quarterback. I think the people that are like, oh, they, they absolutely should have picked a quarterback at four by not doing that. They've screwed themselves. If you don't like one of the guys, don't pick one of the guys. Yeah, if your coaching staff isn't sold, you're putting yourself in a bad position. But because Matt Ryan is there, now this gets really weird because even if they're a very good offense, they're still not bad enough. And you would have had to eat a decent amount of dead money if you traded Matt Ryan. 
but it still feels like the lion's path where you're like, you know what? Thank you very much. Appreciate your service. We're going in a different direction because we don't want to get stuck in that middle ground. I think that's where the Falcons now find themselves. So even if they didn't want to draft a quarterback at four, it still feels like there was a way they could have completely committed to one side where now they're definitely somewhere in the middle. I mean, how do you feel about the Falcons right now, Lindsay? Well, and I think the thing with the Julio trade is that this isn't something that just popped up in the last 10 days or so. It's not like Terry Fontenot and Arthur Blank that all of a sudden turned on Shannon Sharp's show and heard him say he's out of here and said, <laughs> oh my God, really? He's not happy? Like This has been building for a while. He went through some pretty contentious contract negotiations a couple years ago. It, it's been... You know, well, I, I don't want to say he's been unhappy. He's been unhappy financially for a while, and that's been pretty obvious. So the fact that the Falcons kind of found themselves in this situation the first week of June where they had to trade him just in order to even sign their draft picks, it feels a little like they just mismanaged the plan. And the messaging is just really confusing. And I understand if you're a Falcons fan right now, just being confused about what what's going on, what the direction is going to be. And just really sad that you've you've lost a guy who, you know, he's a surefire Hall of Fame player. And, you know, he had a decade that was awesome, where he was legitimately one of the, you know, very best players, not just at his position, but in the NFL for a decade. And you kind of, it it ends this way. It ends on a a Sunday morning in June without a lot of fanfare, you know, it's, so that's just, so that's just disappointing, I think. And I just, I just think the Falcons probably could have handled the PR side of this better and left where everybody maybe had a better picture of what the plan is going to be long term. It also feels like if they had done this before the draft, could they have gotten more? Yeah. I mean, just I think there are a lot yeah. of different things to consider here. I, I tweeted or this you at yesterday. Least build that excitement of like, okay, this is. I mean, even they probably weren't going to get a first round pick before the draft. It just doesn't didn't seem like that first round pick was out there. But at least you can say this is the guy that we got, and yeah. you can start doing that calculation of who won the trade. Easier sell. These are the guys, yeah. and instead we just you know you're kind of doing this calculation of like, oh, it's a it's a second round pick in twenty twenty. I mean, think about what happened with Justin or, Jefferson and Stephon Diggs. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's so much easier to deal with that blow of losing the guy when you can say this is the tangible replacement and the tangible plan for why we wanted to trade this guy. I tweeted this yesterday, and I think it's Julio, like you said, Lindsay, he's one of the best players of the decade. The fact that Julio has been as good as Julio was supposed to be since the moment we heard his name is so, so rare for athletes. I mean, he is an all-time type talent, and now he's paired with one of the more outlandishly physically talented receivers in the league in A.J. Brown. Nate, can you remember a receiving duo with this sort of combined physical intimidation factor, ability. I mean, they standing on the sideline in their pads next to each other is enough to make a defensive coordinator weep. They're the, they're the all bus team. They're they're when they come off, off <laughs> yes. the bus. And Derek like, Henry. Oh, wow. Yeah. Derek Henry. Yeah, I know. Ferkser is actually pretty well sized. And Jeff you got to fight I over mean, who's first off the bus. Like who do you say? I know off? that's what it's definitely Julio. That's what Jim Tressel, Jim Tressel used to do. You know, uh, uh, at Ohio State was he for sure did this on purpose. I don't even know if they were good players or not, but he would walk across. You know, they would go arm arm in arm, and he for sure always just picked the biggest dudes. <laughs> and I don't even know if they were good players, but it's, so it's like these. You had to walk across them. They're in their jumpsuits, and it's like they're really large. <laughs> and that's me at Wisconsin thinking that. But with with actually, I think Julio broke his own record with Mohamed Sanu. 
Like I think that yeah. might have been the that might be the the other only other one and you know is uh, uh Brandon Marshall and Alshon Jeffrey. Like that I mean that was like those are two huge, huge dudes. I can't really think of like the size type because Moss was skinny. He wasn't physically and Chris that Chris way. Carter was skinny too. So even though they yeah. were both six three, they were both on the skinnier side. The two that yeah. were brought up yesterday that I think are great, Fitzgerald and Bolden. Just because yeah. with Bolden, even though Bolden was smaller than AJ Brown in terms of overall frame, like I think he was six one, two twenty, Brown is like is just a little bit bigger. It's still the physicality of his game oh, yeah. combined with Fitzgerald. And the other Bolden one that people brought up. Guys. <laughs> oh, it was ridiculous. And I think overall, those yeah. two guys, th- that might be, that's a really good one. And the other one, Vincent Jackson and Mike Evans. Those yeah. two guys on the outside in Tampa. I forgot about that one when I, I threw it out there. That's a really good one. 230 but, and 230, like 6'4", 230 on either side. Yeah. You can list them on one hand, though. I mean, this is yeah. a rare, rare combination, and that is why I'm very excited to watch it. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a ton of different ways over the next couple months. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Let's get to the coaches. And before we get into some of these specific categories, I want to just have a more general discussion. Lindsay, you've covered the league for a long time. Nate, you've been in some of these buildings. Just about what we should look for in coaches. Which qualities end up making the best coaches? Lindsay, as you've kind of cycled through and thought about all the head coaches you've watched up close, whether it's in Denver or elsewhere, have you found some common ground about what you think makes a good one, what they're comprised of? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, obviously schematics is a huge part of it and your ability to game plan. And I, you know, I think that can't be discounted, but there's so much of the, so much of the other stuff and the way that you relate to players, the way that you manage a roster. Um, you know, I've, I've been around some really good ones. I've been around some really bad ones. Um, so I think there's just this element of kind of CEO-ness. And I hate when we're in the coaching cycle and you hear this like leader of men thing, because like, what does that what does that mean? Like, I don't know. I don't right. know what that means. Like, I <laughs> let's just throw that one out forever. But there is a tangible thing of like being able to relate to the people and not just being so up in your head about your scheme and that you're, it's my scheme, it's my scheme, it's my scheme. And, you know, I think the best coaches are the guys who can relate to people. They can relate to the starting quarterback. They can relate to the 53, the, the 53rd guy on the roster. They can relate to the guys on the practice squad. Um, and, they value the players over the scheme. And that's not to say that they don't trust their play calling and their play design, but you understand that you have to find a way to work with the players that you have. And, you know, so often the guys who get into trouble are the guys that are scheme over everything. And they're trying to fit guys into the wrong places and they're not looking at guys and saying, 
what can you do well? How can I how can I get the best out of you? They're, you're trying so hard to fit them into one specific spot within whatever you view a receiver or a running back or a defensive tackle. So I think kind of that having that flexibility and really wanting to relate to players and just do what they do best. That's that's what I tend to look at and say, okay, I think this guy is going to make it versus this guy who I just, you, you can see it usually right away within, you know, a couple months. Maybe it, maybe it takes a little bit longer, but you can see it pretty way, the guy, pretty quickly, the guys that just probably aren't going to have what it takes to be kind of the, the face and voice of that franchise. Sometimes it takes one press conference at Adam Gase's experience, Yikes. so yeah. it, it can happen pretty fast. Nate, how about you? You've obviously had a lot of experience with this. Well, your dad aside, what are you looking for in head coaches? <laughs> no, Lindsay brings up a great point. It's a people business, and that's the misconception I think a lot of coaches have when they're rising that ladder and they're trying to get that head coaching spot. They're like, oh, it's about my scheme. It's about this cool play that I have out there that everyone else is stealing. It's all this stuff I did with my quarterback. It's like, no, it's a people business. Like Lindsay said, you have to relate to the quarterback. Then you have to relate to the DB coach. Then you have to relate to the scout that you're talking to. Then you have to relate to the owner. That's another thing that people don't realize. You have to answer to the owner. <laughs> and It's not like, yeah, you have carte blanche over a lot of things, but every week you're going to have that Monday morning meeting or Tuesday meeting with, with the owner. And some owners are a lot worse than others and <laughs> how they deal with the head coach and being able to deal that kind of side that uh, I don't want to say po political side, but just more that business sense size is something that people don't realize, but that coaches need. It's not just being a coach and being wearing the ball cap and running out of practice and hooting and hollering and yelling. Drawing up his nose on the chalkboard. Yeah. Yep. And then, and have a big dip in like, that's what everyone thinks a ball coach is. And it's really a, the best ball coaches ever been are very calm and collected. And then well, as soon as they need to, they flip that psycho switch is a good way to put it but they can do that and they have the capability of doing that you have to wear so many hats and what i, I agree with what Lindsay says is that some of this isn't just being those x and o side it is uh, uh it's building a culture and whatnot but there is my only concern is when i ever hear that a coach is a culture coach because then i'm like that's that means he just came from a winning program. I've, I've said this on the show before, but that just means you just won at your last place. And when you say, oh, I was a culture coach, that's all that means. It's like, yeah, a culture coach means winning. Or it means you are not a good schematic coach. And that that's it's like oh, somebody has a good personality. It's like, oh, yeah, he's got yeah, a great that's personality. Exactly, that's exactly what it is. And so that's one of those things. It's And it, say if I were like uh, if I uh, schematically, at least if say I'm watching an offensive coordinator and I'm like, Hey, I really like this guy as a potential head coach candidate. And I am, I'm not sitting in those meetings. I don't know always how this guy's going to teach and how this guy's going to coach, but you like say from a film watching perspective, are his guys playing fast? Are they, do you have two guys running the same route a whole bunch of times? Are the running backs missing a sign? Like, are the offensive linemen letting free, free runners go? Does a QB, like, is the stuff coming out on time? Does the stuff very sound? And if I'm hiring an offensive coordinator to be my head coach and they don't adjust to stuff, like if they don't, uh, they've given up four sacks in the first half and they just keep running it in the second half, I'd be like, uh-uh. Because if he can't do that as a coordinator, now imagine him as a head coach overseeing so much more, so many different variables and moving parts. So those are the types of things. It, it's such a total package and it really is a sliding scale. Some years, some of these head coaches have to be a big-time CEO type. And some years, your top coordinator might just left, and you have to guide along a younger coordinator. And then you have to be more of a coach, like an actual coach in the meeting. So that's the thing with being a head coach. It's a little bit of everything, but it's really hard to be a good one because not every guy can do everything. I think one word that you guys, a lot of things you said kind of boils down to is communication. Communication, mm -hmm. not only in a forward-facing way. I'm not talking about press conference communication. 
communicating your scheme to guys. Being a listener, I think, is really important. But just clear, I think playing fast, Nate, is a great example. If you have an offense that all the guys are playing fast, I think quarterbacks are a good example of this. When I watch, watch the LSU offense in 2019, when I watched the Panthers offense last year, the offense is clearly well communicated to the players on the field. I can tell that Joe Brady communicates his ideas well to his players. Shanahan's offenses play so, so fast. You can tell he's very good at distilling those ideas to the players because even if in your mind, it's this beautiful mind bullshit thing where it's Zach Galifianakis going down the elevator, going down the escalator to play blackjack, if you can't communicate to someone else, it doesn't matter how smart you are. And I think that's a huge part of it. And the three factors I would say, also just this is, I think, offense first right now. If I'm picking a head coach right now, I'm going offense first just because I think that's the best way to sustain great offense from season to season. And great offense season from from season to season is why you stay good in the NFL. I still believe that as it currently stands. Then the other things, I had three factors. This applies to most people, but I think curiosity, humility, and flexibility are three things that are almost like necessary. Curiosity in the sense that all the good coaches I've talked to or gotten to know are genuinely curious about where football is going and where ideas are going. They derive joy and excitement from learning about the game. I and that's I think you listen to like Sean McVay talk about ideas or stories I've heard about Sean Payton when he comes up with something. There is still a a pleasure to be found in the process, and I think that's how you find sustainable success. When there are guys that no longer derive excitement from that process, I think that's where you get stale. And I think that's a huge part of it. The other thing, humility, just understanding what you don't know, listening to guys on your staff, uh, soliciting new ideas, being able to delegate in smart ways, but not over delegate, I think is a really important thing. And Nate, like you said, and Lindsay's too, flexibility. Are you too rigid with the scheme that you're running? Are you able to mold it around your players? I think those are three things that above all else I would value, even though you could probably say that for a lot of different professions, but I think with coaches, it's really important. All right. So let's get to some of the categories here. Let's just start at the top. Who do we think is the best head coach in the NFL right now? Let's say non-Belichick division, or if you guys want to just throw that out the window and not say Belichick is anymore, we can do that too. Lindsay, if we're talking about the best coach in the league right now, where are you landed? Yeah, I mean, I have a really hard time not just landing on Andy Reid for a lot of these a lot of these categories. That's and, totally okay, um, but explain yourself. Well, and I just there's something about the longevity that really, really matters. And you know, Belichick, mm-hmm. you know, this is a non-Belichick category. I I think we just have to kind of put the caveat that like he's the best defensive play caller. He's the greatest, probably the greatest head coach of all time. Um, but when I look at Andy, the thing that I appreciate so much about him is that he, you know, for a guy that's as old as he is, let's be let's be fair, right? <laughs> he's not one of the young head coaches. He is continually evolving who he is as a head coach. He's uh, not Sorry, even just that, but innovating. Yeah, it's not exactly. just that he's sticking with the times. He's be pushing curious. the sport forward. In yes, his, absolutely. Be curious. And to be, be fair, he has the ultimate like cheat code in a quarterback <laughs> who makes it. It's so his every muse. Single thing. That's how I've described it. He, yeah, he, I the mean, curiosity is driven because he has a muse. But like, pushing how many head coaches would be so freaking boring, even with Patrick Mahomes? Like, what totally. if he had ended up with Jason Garrett? I mean, just something like how depressing would that be, right? But instead, he ended up in a place where, I mean, when you think about like that, they had that play last year where, you know, Patrick went in motion 
and they snapped it to him. They, you know, that like the the what was the yeah. play in the Super Bowl? What did they call it with like the spinning? They they did like the there was like the oh yeah the yeah, Motown yeah, yeah. yeah the mean, Motown spin. Just to think to do these really cool innovative things that there's not a single other coach in the league who is thinking of these things. So, you know, and Andy got a lot of crap for a really, really long time about his game management stuff. Some of that was valid. I think he's gotten better at that in that in terms of, you know, now he has a guy where he wants to be aggressive. He's better at managing the clock late in games. Um, but I just the the way that he he just has such a good feel for players. Um, the guys clearly love playing for him. And you know, he coaches young, um, they play hard for him. So I, for a lot of these, I, I guess he's the guy that I always come back to. Um, you know, if I get to pick one, who's not Belichick, give me Andy. Nate, what would you say? Uh, I actually went with Mike Tomlin and why I went with Mike Tomlin. Cause I, when I just was talking about just kind of wearing every different type of hat, he's, he's shown that he can do it. I the mean, reinvention off, is amazing from him amazing. and Harbaugh. I think they're in their own category with how often they'd be able to reinvent the, not only the schematics, but the personality of the franchise in certain ways is so amazing that's, to me. That's exactly what I said. I said he understood the strength of his team all the time, yep. and he changed what he did when they they were rolling with you know Bell, Big Ben, and, and Antonio Brown. That offensive line when they moved that two point the two point line the extra point line back, he started going for two more. He was like the mm-hmm. first coach. He did it week one. All of a sudden, it's like that's we're like no one's calling him innovative, but it was like that was aggressive and innovative because he's on the co- the competition committee for a reason. It's because he is a very very smart coach and he handles personalities with the best of them. I mean, now that we have seen some of those guys get out of Pittsburgh, <laughs> yeah. uh, we really see kind of the turmoil that he has kind of kept the lid on and really handled. I mean, they're competitive week in week out, no matter who they play. They everyone, no one wanted to play the Steelers. No one wants to play the Steelers. They're never. In easy out no matter who you play we can make fun of like you know big ben's arm or whatnot but they're still like a tough team and this past year is they're loaded up on defense and i i just i just think all those types of things and when he's had to handle play calling he doesn't do it so much anymore but he stepped in two years ago he stepped in a little bit the defense got better when he was calling plays it's like the day one when he got hired from minnesota he came in dick lebeau was still that d coordinator their d coordinator in pittsburgh and you know coach lebeau is a legend he came in. He goes. I'm not changing anything. I, and I it was trust so drastic. Where he came from to what Dick LeBeau is is about as far away on the ideological spectrum yep. defensively as you could be. Traditional Tampa too. I mean, that's traditional as it gets. And then Blitzburg. I mean, the original zone blitz defense. And it was like he goes, "No, it works. I'm, I'm fine with it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just oversee it. I'm good." It was like that's understanding personalities, not just the players, but other coaches as well. I'm not gonna rock any boats. I'm not gonna go. No, this is my defense. This is my scheme. Nope. He understand personalities and go and went from there. I just want to have one one little tidbit, uh, not tidbit on Andy Reid, but always my thought with Andy Reid is because he's just been so productive for so long, and, and just no matter who's at quarterback, no matter who he is, who who he has around him, is that he's a fantastic talent evaluator. He is one of the best talent evaluators, coach, GM, assistant coach, player, whatever, analyst. He is one of the best, period, in football. And that's one underrated thing with Andy Reid. He understands talent. Um, but Mike Tomlin, my my pick for the best coach in the league, just because I think he just wears all the hats as best as he can. He can be innovative. He can be a great X's and O's coach. And of course, he can handle the personalities with the best of them. I love that you said Tomlin. I think there's a tier below Belichick. And I think the tier below Belichick, in some order for me, 
is Andy Reid, Mike Tomlin. I think John Harbaugh belongs in there for a lot of the yep. same things yeah. you said about Mike Tomlin, Nate. I think that yep. a lot of those things apply to John Harbaugh. And those two guys are all outliers to me in what I would look for because they're not offensive guys. But their ability right. to evolve and mold and all of these different things, I think, has allowed them to sustain success. And the other guy I would put in that tier is Sean Payton. I just think that what Sean Payton has accomplished in New Orleans year after year, obviously he has Drew Brees, but we'll get into this a little bit later. The success they've had offensively when Drew Brees isn't playing over the last couple of years, I think is such a testament to what Mm -hmm. Sean Payton can do. I think that is the tier. Do you guys think anyone is set to crack that tier? Anyone that's on the brink of getting there? I would say McVay. And I think for a lot of the reasons that we've said, you know, they've won, I think, 10.75 games a year. They've been about 11 and five since he took over with some attrition on the staff. I mean, the fact that he's lost offensive coordinators, he's lost position coaches, he's lost defensive coordinators, the self-awareness to go from Wade Phillips to Brandon Staley and what that did for them, he deserves credit for that. Even though he's not coaching the defense, he deserves credit for that. And I think a lot of the values we talked about with communication, all of that kind of stuff, he's really good. At, at all of those things. I think he's right there on the brink. Lindsay, would you say anyone else is right there kind of working their way into the top group right now? Yeah. I mean, I would throw, I would maybe put Sean McDermott as a guy yep. who kind of fits yeah. the, the mold, the, the Tomlin Harbaugh kind of mode mold, obviously a defensive guy, but has a that's really- where culture center is real, Nate, by the way, what Sean McDermott <laughs> yeah. is doing. That's where it's a real thing. That's a whole organization. thing. Though. Yeah. Yes. And I think he's, he's done, he's made some really smart hires on his staff. The guys that he's brought yep. in there to run his offense and his defense, um, you know, obviously he's picked some really good players and put them in really good positions. So I put Sean McDermott there and then, you know, I just think Kyle Shanahan, we're probably going to talk about Kyle Shanahan here a lot today. I still think, you know, he might still have more to prove in terms of like wearing all of the other hats, but just in terms of like brilliant football mind and the success on the field, I think he's probably in that in that group as well. Nate, how about you? Anybody that you think is on the brink of cracking a top tier? No, McVeigh would have been another one I would have thrown in there. And yeah, that, I mean, that's really all really you guys kind of touched on everybody. I know poor, poor Matt LaFleur. Just just keeps winning games, and we're not going to talk about. It. He just has that like the handicap, good and bad with Aaron Rodgers. It's so hard when to they separate. Thirteen him. games with Jordan Love this year. Matt Lafleur is at the top of my list. <laughs> exactly. I know. I think I, he's I done a great job, but again, he I think has. it's just it's hard to extricate one from the it other. Is. And so I, I, but I do think that he's done a really good job about a lot of the little stuff I've written about. I've talked about some of the little tiny things he's done there with organizational awareness, how to listen to his players, all of those things. He's a really good head coach, but I still think he's one tier below just because we don't have the body of work and the different, the experimental conditions, right? Like there's no control Mm -hmm. group for Matt LaFleur in the same way there kind of is now for Sean Payton and what we've seen him be without Drew Brees offensively. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, all right, let's transition here to the best play caller. And this can include head coaches. It's going to be some of the same names we just talked about. Lindsay, I assume Andy Reid is this for you as well. Yeah, I mean, I had Andy. I had two guys here. It's it's Andy Reid and it's Kyle Shanahan. And kind of for two different reasons. I mean, I think it's Andy because he has just this like most ridiculous playbook and the quarterback where he can literally call anything at any point on the field. And I think he's gotten a really good sense, especially of knowing what Patrick is capable of, what Mahomes can do, of kind of unleashing the right play at the right time. But Shanahan, I think, is a play caller. It's just like he's the best like chess player in the NFL right now, uh, offensively, I think. I think Belichick, you know, is in his own category, and we're going to talk about defensive play callers as well. But so much of what he does, it's all about personnel groupings and setting stuff up. You know, the stuff they do early in the game pays off late in the game, and he's always several kind of moves ahead. So I would just love to, like, kind of be inside of his play calling brain at some point because I also think as part of this discussion it's important when we talk about best coordinators and best play callers a lot of these guys are the same guys but then there's some guys who just have a really good feel for what's happening in the exact moment and what to call at the specific time so those are my two guys Nate how about you I have uh, I have the Shans. I have uh, Sean Payton and Sean McVay. <laughs> um, but uh, no, that that's a great point with Kyle Shanahan. I, I I mean, he's of course in this what my you know podium, my you know top tier. But with with Kyle Shanahan, what's always amazed me is that they never get a delay a game. He gets all this verbiage in, all this shifting motion, new guys in there all the time, new quarterback in there, new offensive lineman. They never get a delay a game. That shows just how ahead of the ball he is all the time. I always think that's so impressive. But with my picks, the Sean's, uh, I just think with with Sean Payton is we we just already touched on him a little bit. I just think his all round unbelievable feel for the game, not just in the passing game, but also when to go, hey, we, we're just around this outside zone, this split zone right now, and they can't stop it. Okay, I'm going to hit two times. All right, I'm going to run a boot now. Here's a play action shot, touchdown. Okay, done, off the field. Here we go. But it's like, he does that. He just has a great feel. He's willing willing to pound the rock. He's willing to run five play actions in a row. He's willing to call three screens in a row. He he doesn't shy away. I think a lot of guys, I think anyone of us, any of us that play Madden, you call the same play a few times in a row and all of a sudden you're like, you get bored. They're on, they're, they're, I, I'm bored or they're onto us. They're onto us. Even though you just ran it for 15 yards or in a row, a bunch of times, that's what real people do. That's a real human element that happens with play calling. Sean Payne doesn't care. He'll just go, yeah, I'm going to run it like three more times. That's what the best play callers do. They know that kind of game theoryness of, of play calling, the human element of, oh, the D corner was onto that. This guy's cheating this. I think he does it so well. And also that's, we touched on it last week, uh, uh, Robert too, is how he ties in that formation stuff. So he has those two runs, those three runs. He's got two passes out of the same looks that week. And I know that's with play design, but he knows how to use, utilize that. And it, it's just so cool watching that offense every week. And like you said, what you're talking about when Drew Brees wasn't starting, it was 
he had Jameson there and he had Taysom in there and it still ran smoothly and well coached stuff. So, and I just, I just really like the flow of the game always with his stuff and never feels halted. And, and then Sean McVay, I, I think one of the, my, still my favorite thing, and I'll say this a thousand times is I just love all the different tempos he uses, how he ties everything together. And also he's another guy that's willing to go to the well over and over and over and then dial up a shot play right at the right time or a double move right at the right time. And I, I like that stuff. I like those guys that they could feel it. A play. A lot of times, I feel like a lot of coaches when they're play calling, uh, the calling plays, they have to wait till everybody comes off the field to communicate everything. I think the best play callers do it mid series because they get the feel right away. They don't need to look at the pictures and go, oh, oh, okay, they they jumped on it this time. They see it real time. They see it and they go, they know what to look for. They go, okay, that corner jumped. All right, all right, next first down. I know what I'm calling. They get the next first down. Boom, shot play, touchdown. That's what like Sean McVay can do or these best guys can do. And yeah, I'm so I got the Sean's. I think that, I mean, a lot of the same names. Uh, Shanahan, in terms of the showy stuff, is my favorite to watch just because I think a lot of the wrinkles and some of the, it's just so much fun. There's, the splashy ideas with him are my favorite splashy ideas, even more than Andy Reid, just because watching him do it with <laughs> Kyle Juszczyk and George Kittle is just more fun to me than watching Andy Reid do it with Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill. It just is. That's just my the yeah. type of football I like watching. It is. <laughs> I think my answer, though, just nuts and bolts, play in, play out, game in, game out is Sean Payton. And for a lot of the same reasons you said, Nate, I mean, the formational stuff is so fun to watch. And I, before we did this, I went back and I watched a couple games just to like, is it really like, is it, am I remembering yeah. this correctly? And they ran a play against the Vikings and I, I think it was a Christmas day game. Right. And they were in 21 and they motioned out to empty and Camaro was on the left wide left and the fullback was wide to the right. And they ran four verts with a little drag from the fullback. And it wasn't just spreading it out and going empty out of that formation it was the little details and the aiming points on the vertical routes to pull guys specifically if their vikings were playing cover three and it was just beautiful like mm-hmm. the guy the number two receiver on the right is the one that eventually ran down the right sideline and just like the way that that route develops pulls the flat defender with him and carries the corner on that left side the way that Jared Cook from the number three spot on the right widened and then went vertical was just enough to give him space away from the deep middle safety. It was just those tiny little details with what Sean Payton does is so fun to watch because they all have purpose. And yep. so you have all of these elements of complexity, but then the granular stuff even down, down, down from that is just so fun to watch. And just those little details, I think, are what sets him apart to me because I know he has Drew Brees and Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara are good players, Mm -hmm. but they're not like, especially Thomas and a lot of the other receivers they've worked with in that era within the Brees Peyton era. They're not these physical marvels of players in the same way that some of these other coaches have. And again, some of the stuff he's done with Teddy Bridgewater and Taysom Hill, I just think that's what sets him apart a little bit to me. And his ty- his type of player though is he likes smart players. Yes, and that's it's. And there's but a reason why. I think that why, says something, he, right? Yeah, correct. He does all that formation stuff, and that's so. Hey, I don't have to worry about them misaligning. Oh, I'm just my one other play calling thing is just Mike Zimmer on third down. That would be my <laughs> my other favorite play caller. Best oh, play I was caller. doing it's, offensive play callers, so that's fine. But yeah, no, I know, but I just want to package that right there. Best play caller on defense on third down only is Mike Zimmer. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to give a nod to some of the non-head coach offensive play callers and talk about some offensive coordinators that we enjoy watching or that are guys to watch. There are 13 new ones this year, by the way. The yeah. amount of turnover at those spots is wild. It was really hard going through those lists to find because so many of them are really unproven. And yes, yep. 
but the, the non-head coach variety. Yeah. So who were yours, Lindsay? Who, who, the couple that you picked out, who would they end up being? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a short list because, like, you know, a lot of these guys are really unproven. Um, mm-hmm. But I just think based on, you know, for saying what we've seen and what we've seen them do recently, I think Byron Leftwich doesn't get nearly enough credit. Um, he's a future head coach. He doesn't Good get the credit because of BA and because of Tom Brady. But what he was able to do with kind of this, like, brand new cast of offensive players last year um, was just it was just really impressive and I don't think he got nearly enough um, nearly enough credit so I'm going to put Byron Leftwich on there as like he, he has to be on the short list of guys um, that should get head, co- head coaching job next year I'm excited to watch him this year because I yeah. thought over the second half of last season he did as good a job as anyone the little tiny tweaks that they made the way that they evolved midstream and some of the wrinkles in the playoffs and he was pressing the right buttons too not just overall mm-hmm. design but pulling the right levers at the right times that screen to Godwin in the NFC Championship game against the Packers for example just little stuff like that yep. even that the Ali Marpet pull big run in the Super Bowl that was that little tiny wrinkle I just thought yeah. he had such a good sense over the second half of the year. So, I, I, Nate, uh, Lindsay, I totally understand that. Nate, how about you? A couple names that you just think offensive coordinator-wise are people to watch. Yeah, and both of mine, actually, same. I had the same limitations as you guys did. I was just like, I, my note was, offensive coordinator list is kind of weird. It's a <laughs> weird like, list. That was, that was my note. weird list. And, and I can't believe this actually ended up being my answer. Well, I had two answers, really, and one was Brian Dable. And, yes. Uh, but my other one is Josh McDaniels. Yeah. And I going in actually when I like you first send us like hey this is what we're gonna go over I was like that, I didn't think that name would be my final answer I I've been more of a fan of Josh McDaniels this last like two to three years than any of the fun really really fun stuff from the early 2010s mid 2010s it's because like he has been very limited with the skill position guys he's at hundred percent also some of the move around O line stuff. And he's made it work. And especially two years ago in 2019, when they were, oh my God, slim pickets. They, I mean, they, like just that receiving core and just what they had. I mean, the shell of Sony Michelle and all that. Like it was like, it was tough sledding. And they were getting chunks. They were making it work to get to 20 points and they're trying to get there, but they were. And that like made me more of a fan of Josh McDaniels because I was like, hey, you, you're making this work with what you got. And that was really cool. Like he went from this big spread it out, air raid influenced offense with a bunch of crossers and overs to all of a sudden eye formation, hard play action, boom, boom. Now they're pounding the rock. They're running pinpole stuff. It's like, well, that's really cool just to see the willingness to change. Uh, over the years, just like we talked about all good coaching. So my answer would be Josh McDaniels. Which it's kind of tough with him because like if you say like what is a Josh McDaniels offense? Like it's hard to know, oh, know. exactly what it is. I know. And like who is he at his core? And that's probably what's made him a really good coordinator for all those years. And honestly his best years maybe are the best coaching jobs he's done have been the years where either they've had that when he didn't have Brady. Look, he got that Broncos head coaching job because of what he did with Matt Castle uh back in two thousand eight. Um and then just, you know, the way that he's the been Percet game, to the one, t- the one Jacoby Percet game against the yeah. Texans, like the, games like that yeah. stick out to me. So I, I totally agree, and I think the fact that they were eleventh in offensive DVOA two years ago, Nate, is just ridiculous. I mean, that, that yeah. that's just wizardry, black magic stuff. But yeah, I, I totally agree, Lindsay. I, I, th- I think that he, there are a lot of examples of him just being great independent of that. And the, I think Dable is my other guy that I would say. I think what he did there last year, and to me, some of the protection details they're able to go through in Buffalo and my understanding of the work he does there, I think is just really, really good. If you look at the handle they had on how to protect out of those three and four wide receiver sets, I just think that it's a really impressive 
bit of detail in, in what yeah. he's able to do and what they're able to do there. Yeah, he knows he knows how to tie it all in. That's what a good 100%. coach does. Rather than just going, I got these cool play pass plays. All right, all right screw the protection. You, you guys figure it out. You know, O line coach figure it out. It's like him and Bobby Johnson. They communicate endlessly. That's it's awesome. That's a good coach. All right, Lindsay, who do you think is the best defensive coordinator in the NFL right now? As we okay. keep on going through these. Well, so we were texting a little bit about this off the show. Can I do a head coach? You can. You okay. can do a head okay. coach for this one. All right, I. I still think Vic Fangio, give me like one game, a non-Belichick division, but like from a purely defensive coordinator and maybe, spoiler alert for a little bit later in the show, maybe he should just be a defensive coordinator. I think he should be. He's really freaking good as a defensive coordinator. He's shown it year after year after year and place after place after place. So um, yeah, I love me some Vic Fangio. And the tree, the tree of coaches that have come out from under him as defensive coaches, um, you know, and look, he's gotten to coach some really good defensive players as well. But I think a lot of those guys, if you go back to, you know, Justin Smith and um, Khalil Mack and Vaughn Miller, a lot of them will give a ton of credit to the type of coaching from Vic Fangio and his just the the feel he has for defense. Mm -hmm. I think it's really funny that it took Brandon Staley for us to understand exactly how good Vic Fangio is. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's because it took Brandon Staley's success, I think, for the cross pollination of that defensive philosophy to really take hold. Because if you look at it right now, you have Joe Barry in Green Bay. You have Staley now with the Chargers. You have Aubrey Pleasant going to Detroit. Sean Desai is a Vic Fangio disciple that is now the defensive coordinator in Chicago. That growth didn't happen. It was when it was just Fangio, even though people who know what they're looking at consistently said that Vic Fangio is the best defensive coordinator in the league. Offensive yep. coaches all around. If you talk to anybody, you t- I, there was a story in the, I go back to this all the time on ESPN.com that John Kime did the Washington reporter where he talked to LaFleur, Shanahan and McVay. I mean, it was a 2012 Washington centric piece. And he asked all three of them, who is the hardest defensive coordinator to go against to a man? They said, Vic Fangio, yep. Kevin Stefanski has told me in the past, Vic Fangio is the hardest defensive coordinator to go against because of the layers of complexity and how hard it is to read post snap. But it took Brandon Staley becoming this rising star, hotshot coach for everyone around the league to be like, oh yeah, this is the hardest thing to go against. Maybe yeah. we should copy this, which I think is just so, so interesting. And I think too, a lot of that, you know, the, the 2018 season where, you know, the, the Rams and the Chiefs kind of just like changed the NFL and Vic Fangio's Bears defense changed everything when they shut down. Let's the not Rams. talk about it. Let's Sorry. not talk about it. <laughs> But I mean that that I mean that influenced exactly what uh, Belichick did in the Super Bowl, how they shut down the Rams' offense in the Super Bowl. So yeah. you know it, the offense was on this, or the NFL was on this like runaway train going one direction with fifty points a game, and all of a sudden yeah. Vic Fangio slammed the brakes on it, yeah. and it changed kind of history. It got Tom Brady another yeah. ring. Uh, it stopped. Jared Goff would have been a Super Bowl champion and he wouldn't have gotten traded. I mean, there's a lot of sliding doors things that we could get into. Fangio's never worked for the Rams and he's owed like a lot of his credibility to the Rams because of (laughs) the 2018 game and then then Staley. No, I mean, with those 49er teams, everyone remembers the offense and and Colin Kaepernick and all the fun stuff. The defense was incredible. The defense was so hard. I have nightmares about those defenses. I mean, it's those defenses were so good, and he still didn't get the pub that he he should have gotten. It was all Harbaugh. I mean, it's just funny how that works. And then finally, you know, he's getting some flowers a little bit. I just wish he would have known and understood that defensive coordinator was his calling, and just never left Chicago. (laughs) I, I, I just wish that would have happened. I also cannot wait 
for the Vic Fangio hire arm race next offseason oh, after the Broncos go 7-9 and nine and he gets fired. I'm really looking forward to where he's going to be the defensive coordinator next year. All right, Nate, how about you? Who do you think right now is the best defense coordinator in the league? I have Spags. I have Steve Spagnuolo. Yeah. And, I mean, it's that's another guy that it, he gets better as the season goes on. I really, he's one of those guys. He gets deeper he into the bag. Yep. He waits until the bye week and then he goes, okay, this is what I got. All right. Let me go through my weird concoctions of blitzes and whatever funky stuff I'm going to throw at you. Okay. This is what we're doing. And then all of a sudden, the second half of the year, they always ascend. And especially in the playoffs, when he can go week by week, he he's unlocked. That's when Spags is one of the best coaches, period, is once he gets to the playoffs and can just kind of really game plan stuff. I, I If you just had a game plan one game, that's a guy I would take. Um, just one of the, he's one of those guys that he, he, lets his players play to their strengths. He just lets guy he unlocks guys no matter where he's been. When it was in New York, he got guys running wide, running the NASCAR package stuff. When he gets to Kansas City now, I mean he still did a lot of funky stuff with New York, but now he gets to Kansas City. Oh, I got this guy named Tyron Matthew who loves to fly around and be very heady. All right, let's unlock him. Let's run some robber shit and just let him go. And then let, let's move Chris Jones, keep him on and they had some fun rush packages. And it's like, that's a good coach right there. And he also has my favorite thing in a defense coordinator, willingness to be aggressive. Actually any play caller but just willingness to be aggressive. He gets torched when he runs cover zero. Guess what's coming back? Here comes another cover zero. He does not care. He is willing to play that gash or be gash, even when all the chips are on the line. Everything is everything is like the biggest play of the game. He's willing to be aggressive. And that I just love that in a play caller, offense or defense. The reason he was not mine is because I think being the defense coordinator of that team is not an easy job. But it's easier than it is to be because it's easy to be aggressive <laughs> when you know that if you make a mistake, it's not going to be the end of the game. When you're winning games yeah. 31 to 27 and you know that, I think it influences the way that you call defenses. But I will say he's the perfect guy for that job. Yep. The one guy I would say, again, just defensive coordinators, non-head coaches, because I think Zimmer's great. Obviously, Belichick, what Brandon Staley did last year, undeniable. I think Wink Martindale has done a fantastic yep. job in Baltimore. They're third in EPA per play since he took over in 2018. And just the distillation of that philosophy where he's like, all right, we're going to play a man. We're going to have just really aggressive, great man coverage corners. And we're going to do a ton of funky shit in front of it. And that's how yep. we're going to live. He is an evangelist of that type of defense. He thinks that sacks are overrated. and You can manufacture pass rushing to their detriment sometimes with the way they've built that team. But I think if you look at the types of players that have cycled through there and played well, Zadarius Smith, Matthew Judon, just guys that have gotten paid out of that system because of the ways they've been deployed, the way they develop players there on defense, I just think they've done such a good job. And again, just little tiny tweaks like moving Marlon Humphrey inside and outside, just all of the stuff they've done there, I think consistently, they are so, so good. All right. Yeah. So this one, we touched a little bit on the guys that might be cracking the top tier, but I think we can go a little bit further down the list. Who would you say, Lindsay, is the next great head coach in the league? Like so somebody that is one of the guys that we already that are that's already a head coach who's going to be the breakout. Yes. No, so so is already a head coach, but you think in two years we will talk about them in the top tier. All right. I feel like I might be stealing one of your guys, but I mean Brandon Staley has <laughs> it. Right. Like all those things that we talked about where it's scheme and like the CEO quality and the, you know, all of that stuff. I think he just has 
it. He's come up under a couple different head coaches who have that with where Sean McVay, they were kind of just these kindred spirits, obviously didn't work together for a very long time. But, you know, he has that kind of McVay-esque quality um, about him. So, you know, I think I think he's he's on my really short list. I'm going to talk about him in regard to a different category okay. here in a second. So let's file that away. Okay. But I, I don't disagree with you. Nate, who would you say? I'm going Brian Flores. And yeah. I, I think I think Flores, I, I'm a huge, I knew nothing about him until he got the head coaching gig. I'll admit that. And I think he is just, uh, just his personality. I was like, okay, he's a little calmer, a little different than I was expecting. But then that year that everybody in the, and their mother knew that they were bottoming out, uh, was how hard everybody played. It, it was awesome. It was so cool to see that at the NFL level. Not everyone moping, they make mistakes. It was chaotic at times. I get that. But it was just, they really, really just played hard throughout that year. They had no right to win six games or whatever it was two years ago. And then this past year, you know, a legit playoff team. They should have been. The AFC was just so funny this year where they finally go to seven teams. Everyone wants 10, 11 games. But I just think he's a, such a passionate and he's a very, very smart coach. And you can tell the guys respect him. And that is hard to do for a guy like that and what the situation he got put in. Like those XNLs credentials to have productive units. I mean, like they hung around with the underwhelming ta- talent two years ago and they're trying, they're trying. Last year, handling personalities, he had Tua and the Ryan Fitzpatrick situation. The guys were still playing. There was no like, oh, that was when they benched two and they went back to Fitzpatrick. And it wasn't like everybody's like, oh, no one came out to the media and said shit. You know, it's just like, it seems like everything is handled well down there and, and everybody's on the same wavelength, even if it's not perfect right now. I just feel like they're all in lockstep. And I think that just starts at the top with the head coach. And so I really do think, I think he has the X's and O's credentials come from Belichick. And I see that defense legitimately running Belichick's defense, not the idea of Belichick's defense like I saw in Detroit the last couple of years is Flores was actually running it. And so, and it was well coached and everyone knew what to do. So I think that starts with him. And I just think if they, you know, get some more tweaks with this offense, I think like he's going to ascend into national uh, spotlight. One of the things that I, I like so much about Brian, sorry, Robert, one of the things that I like oh, so much about Brian Flores, and I didn't mention this up at the top of the show when we're talking about qualities and head coach is that he very clearly knows who he is. And yeah. it's so rare for a guy from the Bill Belichick tree to come in to the league in a head coaching job and not just try to be Bill. We've seen it fail yep. time and time and time and time and time again. And Brian Flores, for a guy who is young, is as young as he is, I think maybe he just turned 40, you know, he just is so sure of himself and who he yep. is as a man, as a leader, as a father, as a head coach, as a play caller, all of those things. And I just respect the hell out of that. I love you dropping. Just turned 40. He's young. I, I know exactly where your head's at right now, Lindsay. Look, I got like 10 more days, dude. <laughs> <laughs> don't think don't think I didn't notice that. All right. Lion, speaking of speaking of guys who are almost 40, and I, I think that when I was talking about the qualities that I would look for in a coach, mine is Kevin Stefanski. And it, it it's because of all of those things. I think that if you look at and Sean McVay is like this too, where Nate, you alluded to this a little bit before. But these guys who come from these hybrid places and all these different, they've seen these different types of offenses. You know, McVay worked for Shanahan, but before that, he was a true blue West Coast guy Mm -hmm. under the Grudens. And having those different types of experiences and having that toolbox is important. And I think it's why I, when Stefanski got the job in Cleveland, I thought he'd do a good job, is because he comes from a million places. He's seen tons of different types of offense. I mean, he, First got hired under Brad Childress, which again, as 
traditional West Coast as you could possibly be from Andy Reid, yeah. and then came to a place where it's Kubiak stuff. And he chose mm-hmm. that type of offense, but still is completely fluent in a lot of the traditional West Coast stuff. And what they did last year in diversifying their run game with Bill Callahan, that's what I mean about smart delegation and about humility. You know this better than me. You help coordinate and design this run game because you do this in a really, really impressive way. That kind of stuff. What they got out of Baker Mayfield when Odell Beckham wasn't even on the field in the second half of last season. I think that humility, curiosity, flexibility, those three things, he has them in bunches. And I just think what they've done and just how put together that organization feels right now with the product on the field and just how different it felt compared to some of the other regimes that have been there. I think he's going to be really good at this for a long time. He he had the same thing going on where it, it, just like how like I was complimented Flores, he had two plays last year. And we talked about at least one of them where, you know, it was the gadget play to the jumbo tight end for the touchdown. It was a yep. gadget, but it was a play action. And then also there was a, uh, it was a Baker run for a first down to ice the game. I want to say it was against the Steelers. I yeah, think it was but, 17. But those, yeah. Yeah. But those two plays um, is how hard everybody played and, and the passion everybody, when they get up and they're, they're celebrating, it's such a weird thing. And it's so hard to like, just, like describe this, but you can really tell how people are celebrating, like they're celebrating the right things in a way. And it's yep. like both of those plays, you could just see the guys, everyone knew what the goal of those plays were. So they all were looking to what was supposed to happen and everyone gets up going like, yes, we did it. And it was like, again, that starts at the top. That's not just one guy in the huddle. Sometimes it is, but one guy in the huddle going like, Hey guys, we're doing this. And everyone's yeah, yeah. It's like, everybody knew the plan. Everybody executed the plan and everybody was happy. They executed the plan. And that, that starts at the top. That's not, that's you can not just a feel the good vibes there. You, you can just vibes. feel that really they is. are people and, you know, talking to even players there, they really respect him and they really like what's going on in that building. I think that there are a lot of good things ahead for them. All right. Yep. Lindsay, when you were talking about Brandon Staley, the next category I had was which first year head coach are you most excited about? That's my answer because and it's for a lot of different reasons. I think, Everything you said is true. And he's just one of those guys that I knew as soon as he got in one of those interviews, he was going to get one of those jobs for a lot of the things that you said. He just, he has it. Whatever it is, he has it. And I'm excited about watching him this year for several different reasons. One, how does that scheme evolve? Because he knows he needs to, and he knows there's going to be copycats all over the place. What does it look like in the second act with different players? filtered through guys like Derwin James and Joey Bosa instead of guys like Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. What does that look like? I'm fascinated about that. I'm excited to watch that. Also, what kind of imprint does he have on the offense? He has said multiple times, he's not going to be a defensive coach that contracts out the offense to someone else because that's where you run into problems. And I am so excited to see what that offense looks like with a defensive coach's fingerprints on it. So just the experiment that's going to be going on in, I was going to say San Diego, mother son of a bitch. I was going to say San Diego again. It's been like five years now. The experiment that's going to be going on with the Chargers this year on so many different levels. I can't wait to watch it. Pure excitement. I'm also excited about watching Robert Sala and just what that, the feel of him and that organization and how much different it feels from Adam Gase. But just on a football nerd level, I cannot wait to watch Staley's Chargers. For, uh, would you say Staley is yours, Lindsay? Just because when you mentioned it before. Oh, of like the first year head coach? Yeah, yeah I'd yeah. put him and I would put um, Robert Sala 
Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm so curious. Like, I just, I, I don't want to get into the whole like culture coach kind of thing. And, you know, Nate, you had a really good explanation this for this before, but like, he's just making it a not toxic situation anymore. And yeah. he's dudes a, at Islanders games, just having a great time. Great I've enjoyed time. his little tour he, of New York that he's done Nick's in the last month. He was actually Nick's game. And he actually like knew how to handle a crowd as opposed to being like, Hey, like he was like, yeah, let's go next. And so he's like, also yeah, go. a really good head coach. And uh, you know, a lot of really smart people who coached with him and have played for him are obsessed with the type of coach that he is. So he's yeah. the other guy that I have just in terms of like a new guy in a new spot that I think is going to be really good. Nate, who's yours? Well, uh, so Salah, that, that's a great point too, is that I, like 2019, if he got hired, I would be like, oh, he's just a raw, raw guy. Oh, he had great players. And then la- we've talked about this, Robert, but this, that 2020 performance totally. that defense did, I was like, he's a good coach. No, hire him. He's, he's head coach worthy. He's good. Great, great personality. Yeah, let's go. Um, but actually, the guy I'm really excited to see, and I, I Staley and Salah would really be gone to head my answers, but really, I want to see what Dan Campbell does. Because I am fascinated. <laughs> and not just like from a what, weird curiosity standpoint? No, no, not morbid curiosity. It's more like, I just want to see where this is going. I really do. I love the vibes that he's bringing there. And it's funny. I was going through the staff because that what, what we're doing for this thought experiment for everything. And, and it's funny. His staff is a whole bunch of former NFL players that are coaches in different ways. You have Anthony Lynn, uh, Mark Brunel, Antoine Randall L. Aaron Glenn. Aaron Glenn, another one. And it's like, do Staley, uh, I believe is there. Uh, yeah. Was he there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do Staley's there. I mean, there's, he, he's going for a certain type of culture. They're going like, Hey, this is a player friendly culture. We know what you're going through, but we're going to, you're going to work, but Hey, you're going to take a load off afterwards. And maybe I'm a sucker for that because that's what my dad tried to do. <laughs> so maybe that's why I just see it's like a kindred spirit kind of thing. But I think players, no matter what, I, I think he's accepting. He's like, I'm going to be more of a, you know, I'm going to handle all this. I, it's a culture coach. So that's hilarious. But players can see through bullshit after over time. Like you guys said, you, they, there's everyone talks and it's some faster than others. Sometimes it takes a full season. Sometimes it's the off season. Sometimes it's two seasons when stuff goes bad, but it's not like some college coach trying to come here and do all this. He played in the league. He's coached in the league. He's done all this. And I just love what he's trying to do. He's saying, Hey, this place has been pretty miserable. It really has. I mean, the entire the whole history of the Lions franchise really has. Let's change it up. Let's just try and hey, let's will this confidence into not only the team but the city, the organization, kind of thing. And I like it. I I, I just want to see where it's going. So I guess that is excitement. But it, it's just really kind of like it's fascinating to me because I want to see like, hey, we're resetting. Which is. Let's just try. Let's try something different. Let's just go with it and try and build this tough physical brand of football that they're going to try and do. I think. All right. So last one here, and I, I really wanted to talk to you guys about this because Lindsay, obviously you're very in tune with the fabric of the league and you know a lot of staffs around the NFL and Nate, you've been a part of them. I want to talk about some of the rising star assistants in the league, position coaches, guys that maybe in their first year as a coordinator, I cheated them and to name a couple of those. But who comes to mind for that with you, Lindsay? Just rising star assistants that you're keeping an eye on around the league. Sure. So, I mean, speaking of becoming 40, I'm working on my annual 40 under 40 list in the NFL. And so I've been soliciting a lot of names of up and comers and top assistants. And there are a lot of coordinators kind of on that list. But there's two names that have come up to me multiple times of just kind of fast rising assistant coaches to watch. First guy is Thomas Brown, who's the running backs coach with the Rams. He is now the assistant head coach to Sean McVay. He's kind of become like Sean McVay. McVay's right-hand man just loves this guy, is taking on a ton of responsibilities. And What's his yes, background? He, 
Uh, he was an edit. He was a running back at Georgia. Um, has kind yeah. of come up as a running through the running backs coach, but he's getting a ton of responsibilities now with the Rams, which I hope he has that opportunity to kind of break this cycle where we're only plucking our offensive coordinators from quarterback coach roles where Sean McVay clearly sees that this is a really, really bright guy. He just has a really good feel with his players. Um, so his name has come up to me multiple times as potentially the next great McVay assistant. I've never heard of him. I'm really glad you mentioned him. That's really good That's to know. Cool. I mean, he, he was only there last year was his first yeah, year. He's, yeah, he's okay. really new. Um, but hey, Malcolm, the, Mal- Malcolm Brown was a great pass protector, so I'm guessing Thomas did something right. So and what, look at what yeah. Cam Akers did as a rookie. I mean, obviously, he's yep. talented, but it's still, they, they, I think that that it's speaks telling. a lot. to. All right, who else? Lindsay? Yeah, so Jordan Rodriguez first put him on my radar, and then I kind of started asking cool. around um, a lot about him. And then the other guy is here local for me in Denver, um, and that's Christian Parker. He is the Broncos' okay. new DB's coach. Super impressive. Um, I've heard him compared to Brandon Staley a lot. Different personality-wise a little bit. I think Staley is a little bit more like the politician, kind of that guy to him. But in terms of like the way that he studies, the way that he kind of will try to look at things through an offensive lens sometimes, that kind of the grind and the building. And uh, DB's coaches under Vic Fangio tend to be super fast risers. So um, Ronaldo just, Hill is the defensive coordinator in with the Ram or with the Chargers now. So yeah, exactly. So um, so those are the two guys who have, whose names have come up multiple times. I don't know if they will officially make the 40 under 40 list, but they're two just these like super fast risers that uh, definitely ner- cool. need some recognition. Nate, how about you? I went with a, it's funny because my next heads up uh, coach or head coach is uh, Dolphins. And I went with the Dolphins DB coach, Gerald Alexander. And and Coach Alexander, I I don't know much of him. I I just have been watching that Dolphins defense, and I started looking at positions I really liked. And of course, I like the Dolphins DBs and what they did. I obviously they have talent there, but you can tell they're well coached. It's it's this. There's no hands up. There's no palms up. There's no two guys covering the same guy. There's none of those little mistakes. And also, so I just started looking into his history a little bit, and you know, I talked around I asked people that might know him I asked a couple of friends that I've interviewed him they said he's a passionate guy he's, he brings a lot of energy uh, but also just his kind of X's and O's background a little bit too is he was a player in the NFL uh, he played about five years then you know he's bounced around he he was I shouldn't say bounced around he did kind of the dirty work he did the internships he did the GA under Chris Peterson at Washington you know he wasn't like a former player that boop, got a position coach right away he did all the grunt work and worked his way up and then he finally got a finally his first uh, he did FCF schools and then the, for about three years he was the Cal DB coach University of California and under the Justin Wilcox defense and Cal's defense has really been a really fun one to watch in college football especially in 2019 which was Alexander's last as a DB coach then. And I, I just like that kind of mixing of what he's been around. He uh, He's just got that interesting background. He had did a minority internship under Dick LeBeau. Um, he played under Rex Ryan for a year. So he has kind of that background to him a little bit, that kind of Blitzburg, you know, chaos that Rex Ryan brings. And nowadays he's getting under Flores. I would have a little more hesitations here if Flores was like a DB background guy, but he's a linebacker background guy by trade. He did a little bit of everything in New England. So it's like Alexander has some say with what he does there. And, you know, that that would be just somebody I want to keep an eye on. And somebody has kind of been brought to my radar doing this study. And now I asked around and it's like, okay, now I've been someone that I think is going to ascend as maybe the Dolphins get a little more spotlight on them. It's funny because I, I went a very similar direction. And a lot of what you just said about Alexander is similar to the guy I chose. I picked Chris Harris in Washington. Okay. And yep. so I, I loved watching Chris Harris as a player. I mean, he was such a, 
he was such a fun player to watch as a safety for the Bears. He was a six-round pick, super instinctual, just was always around the ball. When they traded him to Carolina, I was just crestfallen. When they, I, they eventually came back, but just such a fun player to watch. And this is a fun story, I think, similar, Nate, to what you were talking about with Alexander. At the Combine five, six years ago, I was sitting at the bar at the JW Marriott, as one does, and I was sitting next to Chris Harris. And I just struck up a conversation with him. It might have been even longer than five years ago. And he was trying to break into coaching. And that's why he was there. And he wasn't somebody that just got an assistant job right away. We talked for a few minutes. And we were just talking about what he wanted to do. And just, it was a really fun conversation. And he was a defense coordinator control coach with the Bears. And then he was the assistant DBs coach with the Chargers when Derwin James was there, when they were doing a lot of really good stuff with Casey Hayward. And then he was in Washington last year. And if you go watch at the production from those defensive backs in Washington last season, the way Ronald Darby played, and I think Ronald Darby is a perfect player by which to judge this because he's been a different guy depending on where he's been, who he's been around, all of that. He was awesome last year, and it wasn't like they were doing crazy stuff. A lot of quarters, a fairly simple defense, but the way those guys clearly, they were played so fast. And you could see the way they were seeing things unfold. It was being communicated to them the right way, what their keys were, what formationally they were supposed to be paying attention to, all of that stuff. And I think Ronald Darby embodied that. And then what they got out of a guy like Cam Curl as a rookie, as a seventh round pick. I just think that speaks to the job that Chris Harris did there. He interviewed for the Eagles defensive coordinator job. I think he's definitely somebody to pay attention to based on what he's already done in a single season as a full-time position coach for the first time. That's good. Lindsay, were you going to say something? Awesome. No, I was going to say he's also on my short list of uh, 40 under 40 names. So, yeah, I'm with you. There we go. I'm glad I landed on that then with doing no calls and making no additional research like you guys did. So, all right. That is all we got. That was a really fun conversation. I'm glad we did that. That is kind of the third show in the set of shows we did. Quarterbacks, non-quarterbacks, coaches. The landscape of those positions and jobs in the league, I think that we have covered well enough Thorough. i'm, I'm Thorough. glad we did that next time we're gonna rank nfl time. podcast hosts yeah yeah there we go there we go it's gonna be a fun one uh i that i think it's a good time to do those sort of resets and to talk about the landscape of those things and to refamiliarize yourself with the hierarchies and all that kind of stuff so i'm glad we did that it's perfect conversations for may and for june that is all we got for today we will be back next week me nate and a special guest i'm really looking forward to that we did offensive trends and offensive developments last week. Next week is defense. So be on the lookout for that. Later this week on Friday, we will have the next show in our interview series. I said it was going to be an NFL head coach. It is not any longer. That is going to be next week. It is going to be an NFL general manager on Friday. So still something to get excited about, a conversation I'm looking forward to having. So please come back and check that out. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. A lot of great Julio stuff on the site over the last couple days. The offseason coverage nonstop. Jordan Rodriguez is doing a really interesting series right now about the process that went into drafting the Rams in the mid to later rounds, which is a ton of transparency into the scouting world that you don't normally get. I would highly recommend that. So please go check that stuff out. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I sincerely appreciate that. We'll be back on Friday with the next interview in our series. Until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you later. 
This was the Athletic Football Show.